Hello and welcome to episode two of Blokes Watch Movies. I'm David. I'm joined by my good longtime friends and co-hosts, Jimmy and Mark. This is their second episode. If you didn't listen last week, we're three lifelong friends. We discuss and debate movies. We also have a new slogan, friends, films and feuds. But don't worry, debates may get heated, but very rarely get violent. This week's podcast is about films we first watched on TV. Things are slightly different now with streaming platforms, Sky, Freeview, and so on. But there was a time where we could only really watch films on the standard four channels, BBC, ITV, and Channel 4. Of course, there was video shops, but we'll discuss them in a future episode. I have chosen to discuss Scarface, an all-time classic. I'm assuming that you have all seen it. If you haven't, then please do not ever listen to this podcast again. You are not wanted. Jimmy is going to dissect every single scene in an 80s classic, The Breakfast Club, whilst Mark, um, who only had the basic five channels up until 2019, has gone for a more recent film, Frailty. I believe Mark is going to get us started today with his review and experience of the film Frailty. So, Mark, when you're ready, go ahead. So, 2001, Frailty came out. I had a friend that seen the film and said to me, oh, I went to see this film, it was really good, you should check it out. I said, who's in it? He said, oh, Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, all right. So I had no real interest of seeing this film, to be honest with you. I didn't even really do any research into it. But it was one of those films that wasn't overly successful at the cinema. So unlike unlike a lot of bigger box office movies where they hit the cinema and then it takes a long time for them to come to terrestrial TV, this one was released in 2001 but was on terrestrial TV by 2004, which in terms of cinema to TV is quite a quick turnaround. I was at home one night, saw it was on, I had nothing else to do, I thought, oh, do you know what, I'll watch this. Now, I want to start, before I start talking about the film, I want to say why I wasn't really interested in wanting to watch the movie. So in 2001 to 2004, although Matthew McConaughey had started his career with a couple of good films, he'd already reached that kind of rom-com era, where he was in the same kind of film over and over again, you know he was guaranteed to have his suntanned body and his top off at some point and I was just bored of seeing them and actually if you listen to him or ever follow any of his interviews he kind of highlights the fact that he realised that his career had kind of gone down a, a dead end because they were the only kind of movies that he was being offered and it wasn't until to kind of like 2011, 2012 that he actually got out of that sequence anyway, on to frailty so this quick overview what the film is a mysterious man arrives in an office of an FBI building he recounts his childhood uh, as he talks to the FBI agent. The FBI agent is the lead agent tracking down a serial killer called God's Hand. Um, so this gentleman recounts his his lifelong experience, explaining that he is God's Hand. And then the film moves forward from there. So I know a lot of people won't have seen this film, so I don't really want to spoil the storyline too much. I would say it's a psychological thriller on the verge of being a supernatural thriller as well. It's extremely entertaining. A reference to morality and religious point of views throughout the film. It reverts back to those kind of like old school horror movies in the sense of there's no blood and gore and guts, but it does keep you on the edge of your seat, very much like a John Carpenter movie, such as like Halloween would do. I know we have got a psychopath in it, but it, it's you see Michael Myers not as much, and even when he's not there, 
that that temptation of him being there was enough to kind of keep you on the edge of the seat. And Froughty does that as well. So it's a directorial debut for Bill Paxton. Brilliant actor. Rest in peace, Bill Paxton. He's been in loads of films. If you don't know who he is, you will know who he is if you saw him. He was in Aliens, Apollo 13, Twister, uh, Tombstone. Brilliant in True Lies, if you've ever seen True Lies. He's the guy who's the U-card salesman that pretends to be a spy. But anyway, also in Titanic, Edge of Tomorrow. So he features, he's an actor in the movie, as well as being the director. It also has uh, Matthew McConaughey. And I think it's, is it Powers Booth? He's the guy who, again, he's one of these dudes that you would have seen him as the baddie in anything. I remember him being a brilliant baddie in Jean-Claude Van Damme's Sudden Death. But we'll have to do a whole episode on that film at another point. So yeah, I said it was a psychological thriller. There's a little bit of a supernatural edge to it. It was extremely enjoyable. The only thing, I, the only criticism I've got in the movie is that, again, without spoiling the plot, the last 20 minutes are really, really clever, but they're not done very, very well. So the script was written well. The actual way that it kind of transpired was a little bit cheesy. Other than that, it's thoroughly enjoyable. I think you'll be on the edge of your seat. It's dark at points. It's quite moving at points. It's quite relatable as well. So it's a really strong movie. Uh, again, I don't know if I ever would have gone to see it at the cinema, but it, w- it is one of those films that if you went around someone's house and they put it on, you would have been pleasantly surprised. And, and, uh, and generally, that was my experience with terrestrial TV movies. Because anything that was big box office, I would have gone to see it at the cinema. It was the ones that I didn't really get to see or that weren't available at the video shop when I went round there that I generally found that I tried to watch on terrestrial TV when they became available. So have I of you two ever seen this film? Yes, I actually watched it for the first time about seven or eight years ago. And I, I have to be honest, I had never heard of it. A mate of mine mentioned it every, every other time I saw him. Have you watched Frailty yet? Have you watched Frailty yet? And I eventually did. And I, I, I'll be honest, I thought it was excellent. Bill Paxton, I didn't realise he directed it until you just said that. He was very impressive in it. I'd only really seen him in a couple of things. To me, he will always be the the annoying big brother in Weird Science. I'm not sure if any of you uh, uh, remember yeah, that. Yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm going to name drop Weird yeah. Science later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, he was superb. But yeah, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, surprised you chose it, but it, I can understand why because it's one of those films. If you've seen it, it, it stays with you one way or another. It's superb. But it's a good Sunday movie, isn't it? If you said to someone, "I'm not watching anything," just stick that on because. <laughs> but the idea is, don't tell them too much about it because once you over elaborate on the story, it will spoil the film. After it's not, it's not like you're going to go watch a, a big action movie and there's lots to see and big explosions. So there's stuff to keep you entertained anyway. The whole thing is based around the script and the acting. So if you give away too much of the plot line, it, it, it just kind of dies a death. Yeah, now I had never actually heard of this movie until it was brought up on a previous conversation. And I've resisted reading up about it because I didn't want to sort of pre-prejudice myself towards anything that you were going to say. But if you, as, you, as you pointed out, at this stage in his career, McConaughey would have been going into the rom-com genre is this performance a like preview of what he would go on to do in true detective or is he in intense mode in this one or is he still like the the dreamboat mcconaughey that he was in the 90s well to be to be fair that's a really really good point although i say matthew mcconaughey stars he doesn't actually star in this movie he's just the biggest name in it so at the beginning of the movie he walks into the fbi agent and talks to him about his childhood 
then the rest of the film is a reflection of his childhood. So although he kind of narrates the film, he's not actually on screen. Not until later on in the movie. Gotcha. But his performance is good. He's, but but the, the, the standout performance is Bill Paxton. And then I think the only other film that I actually think around that era we had a pretty solid performance was The Lincoln Lawyer. Have you seen that film? Yeah, yeah, a long time ago. Yeah, so it's quite similar to that. It's kind of expected McConaughey. He doesn't overact as such. But yeah, it's not got the same intensity as you've got in the last kind of five to six years. No, definitely not. But it, it is a good, it is a, a, a well-maintained performance. And so like, does that work to the film's effect then? The fact that it is this sort of heartthrobby character in this dark story, does that, you know, does that work to unsettle the viewer? Or Again, without giving too much of the plot line away, I think it does work. I think it does really work. Because the story's kind of told back to front, you know, he walks in, and then you and then you go back to his childhood and it tells you a story. It does work. Due to the nature of McConaughey not being on screen, I think that helps as well. I think if we saw a lot more of him, it'd be a bit less believable. But because you hear him but don't see him, it, it, it works it works better. It works in its favour. It's a little bit like the Paul Nichols situation we had last week. He is very clean cut and handsome, isn't he? And the child goes through a really rough time. And if you had him in the film all the time talking about how bad his childhood was, it, it wouldn't work as well. But the fact that he's just the narrator and it's, he's kind of out of sight, out of mind, I think it works a lot better. Would you agree with that, David? Yeah, everything about the film from what I remember. I, I remember the child actors were very good as well. All my memories of the film are nothing but positive. It was a really well done film. And yeah, they, they sort of played, they, you know, they cast it very well indeed. Uh, we watched... We actually had watched True Detective before we'd watched Frailty. So, so the year that True Detective come out over over in the UK was the, around the time I watched it because we we were we were sort of surprised, you know, that Matthew McConaughey was doing this kind of stuff yeah. back in the um, was it 2001? You said so. Really good film. Can't recommend it enough. You're gonna, you're gonna watch the film within the next week or two, Jim. Do you feel? I'm gonna seek it out definitely. Yeah. I'm definitely going to seek it out. Do you know what, though? It's a great TV film because once you've watched it once, you'll never want to watch it again because because of the way that the plot works. That once you've know, once you got the plot, then it's not something you can really revisit. I think if you watch it a second time, you yeah, probably it, think it was your, shit. Your account of watching it for the first time is reminding me of the first time I watched this um, serial killer movie from the, I think it was from the late 80s or early 90s. It was called Relentless. And I don't know if you ever saw that movie, but um, that was a straight-to-video movie by directed by William Lustig, who did Maniac Cop, and it starred Judd Nelson as a serial killer going through the phone book and killing people with his name. And that was one I saw on BBC One on like a Saturday night and yet had never... I wouldn't say I've never had the desire to see it again, but it's never come around again on TV as far as I know. And I, I like the the full memory of not only watching the film but where i was watching the film so you're watching the film in my grandmother's yeah, living room yeah. staying up late on a saturday you know it, it all it all comes together to make one memory so the memory so I, I that's why this is such an interesting thing to reminisce about because the experience that david described in his intro that becomes you know, the experience beyond the film it isn't just the film it's the act of watching it that you remember as much as the film itself we might as well lead straight into you now my nomination uh, for this discussion is The Breakfast Club, and I'm going to go straight into it. So The Breakfast Club was released on the 15th of February 1985. It was written and directed by John Hughes, who at the time had already produced 16 Candles after cutting his teeth on the National Lampoon series. 
He would go on to direct Weird Science and Ferris Bueller's Day Off over the next couple of years, which would cement his name as the byword for sharp-witted, compassionate teen comedy dramas. In addition to Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall, who both starred in Sixteen Candles, the cast features a trio of actors who would come to be known as part of the Hollywood Brat Pack, Emilio Estevez, Ali Sheedy and Judd Nelson, who would also appear in what was marketed as the ultimate Brat Pack movie, St. Elmo's Fire, which was released a mere four months later in 1985, but which arguably did not have the staying power of this movie. So to summarise the plot, The Breakfast Club begins at 7 o'clock in the morning on a date identified as Saturday, March 24th, 1984. Five high school students report for all-day detention. Each one initially presents as an archetype. So you have Claire, played by Molly Ringwald, who's a popular rich girl, and she's so spoiled her father actually assures her that he will make it up to her that she even has to go to detention. Brian, played by Anthony Michael Hall, is an academic high achiever whose parents are so demanding his mother orders him to figure out a way to study while he's sitting in the library doing nothing all day. Andrew, played by Emilio Estevez, is a varsity wrestler whose dad insists there's nothing wrong with screwing around, but makes very clear that it absolutely cannot interfere with his quest for a college scholarship. John Bender, played by Judd Nelson, is a kind of ne'er-do-well who has been disciplined for pulling a false alarm during school hours and who seems more than a little blasé about the prospect of future detentions. And then finally you have Alison, who's uh, played by Ali Sheedy, and her reason for receiving detention is initially unclear, but what is clear in the opening scene is that her parents have so little interest in her, they don't even say goodbye after dropping her off. Under the hostile yet indifferent gaze of the assistant principal, Richard Vernon, the five assemble in the library where they must stay until four o'clock. Vernon sets them a task of writing a 1,000-word essay describing to him who they think they are. But before the quintet can get around to writing their papers, the rebellious Bender sets about antagonising the others purely as a way of procrastinating and passing the time. And as each member of the group defends the archetypal wall that they've built up around themselves, they naturally begin daring to look inward and face up to the various dissatisfactions with their lives and the stations that they are otherwise trying to ignore. And so the backstory to my discovery of this film, so The Breakfast Club has been one of my personal favourite films since I very first saw it, and I think I was at the perfect age to see it. I, I was 13. Uh, I can't be 100% sure of the exact timings, but as far as I remember, I first come across it in the TV listings during the summer of 1994. It was a midweek broadcast on BBC One after Question Time. And initially, my interest would have been captured by the presence of Anthony Michael Hall and particularly Emilio Estevez in the cast. At the time, I had seen Weird Science on the VHS copy that my cousin had, which Anthony Michael Hall was in. And you know, my 13-year-old self harboured an affection for both of Estevez's Young Guns movies that was deep, profound and possibly illegal, given that the first one was rated 18. But yeah, it was the early 90s. It was a different time. So there was never any doubt that I was going to make the effort to program the video recorder to tape The Breakfast Club overnight. And if you can remember, like, programming video recorders to tape something while you were asleep and, like, the, the stress of, you know, did you get it right? Yeah, did you set the right channel? Is your dad going to come down and turn the telly over? Yeah, like, yeah kids don't know. Like, they really don't know. Fucking, you know, with fucking <laughs> TiVo and all that shit. Sky Plus. What about tracking? Oh, tracking. Yeah. Yeah. God. Like, how many videos did we have that had, like, white noise at the top of the screen? Or just, you know, like, just the, the grey and silver sort of stuff, yeah. Uh, um, those Bruce Lee movies I showed you last week, you know, some of those, yeah, all over the shop. Um, and so, yeah, but because the TV listings, you know, uh, flagged the cast who I recognised and also said that it was directed by the same director who did Weird Science, I would have gone into it expecting a similarly high-concept comedy. But what I actually got was the kind of, 
you know, dialogue-heavy, knowingly navel-gazing feature film that I had never experienced before at the age of 13. You know, this was 1994, so our exposure to content that would be described you know, then as teen and, and now as YA would have been limited to stuff like Grange Hill and Press Gang or at a push some of the plot lines on Neighbours and Home and Away. Otherwise, you know, the only available content about teenagers would have been things like Saved by the Bell and California Dreams. But these usually served up stories that were very lighthearted and fluffy not counting that one time Jesse Spano got addicted to caffeine pills. But, so The Breakfast Club, by contrast, was a film that had its characters investigate themselves in the kind of navel-gazing way that would become part of the mainstream for our generation roughly 15 years later, if you think of you know, TV shows like Dawson's Creek. And I think one of the reasons why this film endures, despite some problematic content that we're going to talk about later, is that I imagine for a lot of teens and tweens who saw it at the time, it was the first film they would have seen where the characters would have been deliberately giving voice to the kinds of things that in real life viewers might not have felt comfortable talking about. And it's why yeah, John Hughes's decision to make each member of the cast a very obvious archetype works so well because it presents the audience with five options for character connection. Each of these five characters are sketched very broadly. You know, you have the popular girl struggling with peer pressure, the athlete struggling with parental expectations, the academic boy struggling with very different kind of parental expectations, the delinquent struggling with low expectations, and the introvert struggling with parental indifference. But these broad strokes allow wide sections of the audience to apply their own experiences to the characters, and you know, sometimes more than one of them. And I think it's because of this that audiences first took them to heart and why subsequent audiences continue to do so. The film is at least willing to explore and investigate the archetypes a little, although admittedly not to any significant degree. Uh, there is a very conservative philosophy underpinning the film, which puts forward the idea that these characters' biggest victories are finding moments of joy and expression strictly within the confines of the school and their adopted personas and ultimately their families. But in tying the teens' dissatisfaction to their externally applied expectations, Hughes arguably strikes the kind of defeated yet resilient note that would have chimed with his audience. They would have recognised the authenticity of the emotions on display, and that's perhaps the key element that makes the film feel so timeless. But it's not 1985 anymore, it's, it's 2021. And 36 years on, there's no way of getting around the fact that some aspects of the movie are not timeless. In fact, they're legitimately problematic. Uh, this is especially true with regards to some of the sexualized content in the film, which, yet, while nowhere near as crudely misogynistic nor as pervasive as something like Porky's, which predates this movie by three years, it's impossible to defend, even with the excuse of you know, it was a different time. Watching it back now requires a kind of compartmentalising on the part of the audience, you know, an, an elective decision to let the wit and humanity in the other parts of the script outweigh a couple of instances of objectionable, even criminal behaviour. It's understandable if some audiences are unable to do this now, and Molly Ringwald herself even you know, wrote a terrific essay for The New Yorker, re-examining not only her relationship to this film now, but also her collaborative partnership with John Hughes. But since the film's popularity does seem to endure, it would appear that audiences do make this choice. And the film re remains something of a seminal touchpoint for many. Indeed, it created in me a love of hyperverbal navel-gazing stories that would go on to see me take to heart films like St. Elmo's Fire and Before Sunrise, and not to mention television series such as Dawson's Creek. It, it all begins with The Breakfast Club, and I would not have discovered it had I not been you know, flicking through the TV listings. And the fact that I stumbled on it is why it's so special to me. And so to open up the discussion a little bit, you know, obviously, I know David and I went to be went on to become huge fans of uh, Dawson's Creek. You know, I believe David 
borrowed my box set for about four years. But I was just wondering, um, you know, if either of you had different touch points for the teen movie genre. I mean, can you remember the first movie or TV show you watched where you either felt like you were seeing yourself on screen or like you could invest parts of yourself in the fictional character? I mean, was it The Breakfast Club? Was it another John Hughes movie? Do you know what? I'm a massive John Hughes fan and I do actually quite like this film. But it's different for us compared to maybe some of our listeners that are based in the States because, for example, David's misbehaved on a Friday. Mr. Unknown says to him, I've had enough of you, David. You're back here on Saturday for detention. I know David's answer, as he explained last week, would be, I'm nobody's skiv. And there's no way you'd get him to go back to school on a Saturday to go to detention. So some of the stuff that happens in the movie, that, that those Americanisms, things that maybe that if you went to, to high school in the States that you can relate to, I can't relate to. But it doesn't stop from the entertainment and the underlying story and the issues that you've just raised because those characters, or those stereotypical characters, there's always somebody like that in a social environment, whether it's work or school, that you can kind of relate to, you get. But in terms of, did I ever watch Saved by the Bell and see myself in any of those characters? No, I always just saw them as a bit, as, as entertainment. Beverly Hills 91210. I mean, we, we went, like you said, if it wasn't for those John, those John Hughes movies, we went for a whole ream of sitcoms, what are they? Dramas, teen dramas that came from the States, like you said, from the kind of 90s right through to the noughties. Dawson's Creek was probably the peak of it, though, because there was good acting, good scripts and good content. But there was a lot of them. There was a lot of them. I mean, obviously, we followed with the OC, didn't we? We had that for for a while. Um, I think every generation kind of now has one. Yeah, I mean, in the 90s, I don't, I don't know if it's the same uh, as it is now, but there was a period in the 90s where um, particularly... On fil in film and television, that American culture really did, you know, take over um, British culture. We didn't have any equivalents of the Saved by the Bells or the California Dreams, or yeah, they would go on to be Hang Time and USA High, and they were all the same formula, uh, all coming out of the same studio. But there were so many of these that I don't think uh, the BBC or ITV felt the need to try to do it themselves because you know they were ready-made coming over from the states. And I do think that. The cultural influence that the the US had at that time, it did sort of dictate what it was like for us growing up as teenagers in the 90s, because our content wasn't as what I described the Breakfast Club as being navel gazing. Our content wasn't or, or didn't tend to be as sincere and emotional as the American content did. And one of the things that struck me when I was watching this film back in in the run up to uh, doing this, uh, having this conversation, was the question of it, did we let those movies and TV shows stand in for us. So where we weren't able to express ourselves among our friend, friends groups about at school, you know, did we let the drama that we watched it stand in for us? Did we invest, our, did we choose to see ourselves in these stories and let that express for us? Does that make any sense? You're completely does. No, because you're wrong. <laughs> when, when PJ lost his eyesight, I cried. Oh, I forgot about that. I don't know how many people used yeah, to watch Biker Grove, Grove. But when PJ lost his eyesight, it was one of the most emotional things that ever happened on <laughs> British television. But I, I, you are 100% right. But the difference is, is that in the UK, we associated our drama with our soaps. So in that time, in the 90s, without doubt, people of our age then, 11, 12, 13, would regularly watch the EastEnders, 
the Coronation Streets with your parents. It became a home thing. I mean, who watches EastEnders now? Does anyone even watch it anymore? I don't know. Yeah. But, you know... Danny Dyer's in it. I did put it out, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, everybody remembers when Ian lost it. He lost everything. <laughs> I've got nothing left. Like, there were... Or when Pauline hit Arthur with the frying pan. So we have got those moments. But, yeah, they're not teen-orientated. Um, but but if you did a British one, it wouldn't work. Like, how many times did you come to watch us play football for the school? There was never a crowd of 500 people cheering <laughs> us on. Most most of the time, the teachers didn't even bother turn up. Or the ref. Or the ref. Like, this idea, like, you know, we've got a completely different environment. Yeah. I mean, we went to a school that didn't even have a football pitch on it. We had to walk 15 minutes to get to the football pitch. You know, having a gym with flags and people cheering you on, it was more likely someone's going to tell you your shit than they were to say, do it for the school. I mean, could you imagine Blackheath Bluecoats our school, what would the animal be that would be our our mascot? I'd like it. It'd be a... Uh, no, it'd be a, like an urban fox, wouldn't it? Like, sorry, like, <laughs> so, a rat. Like a a raggedy, diseased, <laughs> vermin fox. Straight from the street. We'll come to your school and take whatever we can get. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, just going back, I, I, I think like we can all associate with with characters from that. I mean, my lot of memories of James back in the late nineties when I watched Breakfast Club and I saw Bender. I realise now why Jimmy's nickname at school was Bender. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there was clear similarities. Um, Mark, Jimmy, I think we, are we both on the same page that that Mark and Colton. Uh, are almost like for like Carlton if you don't know who Carlton is then get out uh, you mean Fresh Prince yeah uh. <laughs> and uh, I think I'm AC Slater no would you say <laughs> I think me and AC <laughs> it's uh, it's all it's all there but we did England did I did I did used to like Grange Hill it was um, it went on and off though yeah you know it peaked with Roland yeah I mean I'd I think every every kid at school at one point or another, every child, sorry, not at school, at one point did watch but we, Grange but again, Hill. What Jimmy's um, saying, true, we never had a film like that, that not such a, an iconic no, movie that was a, a representation of how we felt as kids at school. It just didn't happen, did it? And the pressures that we had, never. it never happened. And I, and I think it'd be really difficult to do now because I think that those that stereotypical um, character set that he's had is so much vaster now. You, you'd have more brackets in it. Yeah. And it'd be trickier, like, just thinking about it, it would be trickier to do a American-style high school story at a British secondary school because British secondary school kids generally wear uniforms. So it's not, it's not easy Identify. to signify yeah. the different you know the different personas the different adopted identities because everyone's wearing the same thing so to do that you have to take the story out of the school um and so yeah the, the aesthetics just aren't the same um i'm sure generally speaking the day-to-day the experience is very similar but in terms of filtering it through the form of cinema and putting it up on the screen it it, it doesn't work in in the same way oh i suppose we're on to you now david then yeah good stuff well as i as i said earlier we're I'm going to be discussing Scarface. I'm, I think we're all 
pretty familiar with the plot, so I'm not going to maybe uh, go into it the same way my uh, Mark and Jimmy did. What I will say is, when I was sort of doing a little bit of research in it, I was going to say it's the kind of film that will never be re- remade. There's just, just no way you can better it. And then I actually saw that it actually was a remake of a, a film released in 1932. Obviously, a, a little bit more of a mod, uh, more modern version with obviously alterations, but the lead character was even called Tony. So there was a lot from that film that was sort of used in the in the version that we've all uh, gone to love. But I'm going to start really in around, I'd say it was May, June of 1996, at an estimate. It was a, a Sunday evening. And I knew that Scarface was going to be on terrestrial TV. I'm pretty sure it was BBC Two. It, it was nine o'clock. And I remember like, sort of looking forward to it. It's a film I'd never seen, but I sort of heard my parents sort of talk about it when they had first seen it. And it, it got a lot of, it seemed to me that a lot of grown-ups had watched it and I wasn't allowed as a young child. But now being 15, it's on terrestrial TV. I was there and I was waiting. I watched it and I absolutely loved it. I took in every second of it. I was in my element. I rem- I still remember sort of how I felt that when it ended, obviously, I'm going to give away an ending to spoiler alert when uh, Tony Montana um, sadly meets his death. And I couldn't go to sleep after. I was sort of full of adrenaline. I can sort of compare it to sort of like a, a football match. If you've ever gone or watched a midweek football match and, and it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a good match or a penalty shootout and then you just can't sort of bring yourself down. I remember it being quite late. I'd estimate it was about 11, half 11, but there was just no way I could go asleep and it was a and it was a school night as well. I went to school the following morning and Scarface, as much as I was sort of thinking of it, it wasn't something I expected to sort of be like the forefront of all conversations like it was. It seems like the minute I entered the school, it seemed like everyone was talking about it. It seemed to just, it, in my opinion, it sort of impact like a whole influence like a whole generation that's genuinely how i remember it it seemed like for the whole week there was just scarface lines just sort of being used if someone got nutmegged it weren't nuts it was like look at you now everything just completely <laughs> uh, like was sort of scarface related and it just seemed like to, to hang on that forever Obviously, I've just mentioned the lines. There's there's virtually hundreds of lines that we could we could just go back and forth with now that pretty much would would go on for hours. You know, Google scarf funny Scarface lines, and there's just video after video, eight, nine, ten minutes long, and they're different quotes in different lights and quotes in in all of them. But, but also the characters and how well acted they are. Obviously, Tony Montana, Al Pacino, you know, one of the most influential actors actors of the last 50 years um great character but even robert logia as frank brilliant plays it so well omar i mean omar who was i'm not sure how good your guy's uh, memory is but omar i'd never seen him in anything other than amadeus we had to watch amadeus in music do you remember yeah <laughs> f, f. murray abraham yeah <laughs> what's his name F. Murray Abraham. Yeah, so I just thought, oh, that's the guy from Amadeus. But he <laughs> he pulls out one of the greatest mm. lines that I think we will always try and use, which is, I think he's a fucking peasant. <laughs> Something that I, we've used regularly over the years. But Michelle Pfeiffer as Elvira, you know, she, she acts, you know, really well. Um, it's the performance of her career. I, 
you, you, I actually agree. She's never bettered it. Yeah, it was that and Greece too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and another thing, I sort of thought, I thought I've never the character Sosa. I mean, the he's not a, a a major role in the film, but I think he plays it so well. I actually, you know, like looked him up because I'd only ever seen him in is it War War Deal? He's in a Schwarzenegger film from the eighties as well, but. I don't think I've ever seen him in anything else. Unfortunately, he um, he died in the 80s, which is why we've never seen him. He died reasonably young. But his performance as Sosa was absolutely chilling. You know, I genuinely believed he was a Bol- Bolivian drug lord. You know, like he looked... When he threatens Tony, you're scared, you know? I think he... You know, you know he means business. It was... The film, you know, was just was just absolutely beautifully done. Um, I like noticed that after a week, most of the score had sort of just got on, moved on. But me, typically, you know, thirty, well, twenty-five years on, I'm still like obsessed with the film. And you know, for a while, I think I took everything to a a whole new level. I um, had an alias as a young man called Jack Montana. Um, and I would uh, join snooker clubs um, and whatnot under the name Jack Montana. Um, I'm pretty sure I've actually still got one of the cards, which I will put up on on Twitter, um, so look out for it. Um, And I also um, made a promise to myself as a young man that I would marry a woman called Elvira. Um, It was something that I genuinely intended to do, I wanted to, hey, Elvi, come here, give me a kiss. <laughs> I really wanted to say that and do it. Um, I never actually got to meet a woman called Elvira, but one day met a, a pretty young lady, um, asked her her name. She didn't say Elvira. She said something that sent chills down my spine. She said her name was Tony with an eye. Um, and I then knew, <laughs> you know what? <laughs> this is what's meant to be. <laughs> you know, this is what was meant to be. Um, and, yep, she, uh, you know, she's the one, and she's the one I've uh, ended up having children with. And um, as as things have gone on, um, my obsession with the film, um, which unfortunately began to impact my family life and relationships, um, you know, she's, she's got it under control. Um, but there was a period where even... You know, um, a trip to the supermarket began uh, become. There was a period where even going to the supermarket um, sort of become me doing it as as Tony Montana. Um, a few years ago, I um, went did some shopping. Tony was heavily pregnant. I walked to our local Morrison's and. Notice that as I was putting the stuff on the conveyor belt, I put the, the, the carrier bags after the food, and I remember clearly putting two bags for life on the conveyor belt, and I heard three beeps. Beep, beep, beep. I said, uh, what are you doing? I said, I, I, I put two bags down, not three. He said, I'm oh, sorry, mate, what, what do you mean? I said, you know what I'm talking about, you little cockroach. <laughs> so, stretch. Straight away, I realized, you know, again, I'm, I'm in this Tony Montana zone. That, you know, it sort of began to take over. There was a, an old an old lady behind me, n- no younger than 75, and she's like, you're right, 
You're right. <laughs> just spurred me on even more, you know. So I turned around to her and I said, like, I never trust that guy. You know, like, <clears throat> went home and obviously um, told Tony that I'd been banned from Mollison's for um, six, six months. And um, that's when she started to sort of take a hold on my obsession with the film and my obsession with the character. Um, I'm pretty sure that when I um, disowned my son for um, not being able to take more than one step um, um, is when she actually barred me outright from ever watching the film again. Um, <laughs> one of the steps when you've got uh, post-Scarface syndrome is that you do talk about it. So I'm, I'm going to share this with you. I'm not proud of it. But uh, my son took his first steps. It was a very proud moment. And... Um, he just sort of wouldn't, for the next few days, are still crawling, you know, and you, you sort of want them to keep walking. You tell people, oh, look, he walks, but he don't, you know. Um, so then uh, I said, oh, Tony, I said, oh, uh, you stand over there. I'll stand here and he can walk for me, walk to you. And and uh, he just wouldn't do it. So she's going, oh, David, spur me on, spur your son on. I said, son, wish I had one. He's a bum. <laughs> and then from that moment, um, she barred me. And I haven't watched Starface now in uh, three years. Um, uh, we. Uh... Do you know what a chasa is, David? <laughs> it's a till attendant that doesn't fly straight. <laughs> That's what I said to my dad. <laughs> but yeah, um, I think we'll all agree that the the lines uh the lines in the film are just are just second to none i've i virtually have got a list and on and on but obviously that's something that maybe we can all just sort of discuss now our favorite scenes our favorite lines because i think there's no denying it's there's tons of them uh, many a time i've used the line and someone's not understood what i was talking about <laughs> about two years no, over two years ago 18 months ago i took my daughter and my son roller skating now my daughter was six and if you're five, the roller skating's free. So I told her that she's five. Right? Before we've gone in, I've said it four times because I know what she's like. So I've gone in, I've paid. Then I've got ordered the skates. The woman's gone, oh, sorry, you've got to pay for one more. So I realised that she's asked Amelia how old she is and Amelia's told her six. So I, so I said to her, what did you tell her? She said, I said, I'm six. And I said to her, I told her you to tell her you was in the sanitarium, <laughs> not sanitation. <laughs> and she was like, what? And then I was just, I paid the woman and I walked away. But she did not have a clue what I was talking about. And my mother was like, what are you talking about, dads? <laughs> but yeah, kind of, the, the, the funny thing is, is when you say lines from that, because the thing is, is that I'll say to, my, my, uh, to Tony, oh, do you like Scarface? Oh, it was brilliant. And then you, you say some of the lines to her, she just don't get it at all. You know, it's just sort of like, yeah. there's like in the film and then there's taking it to level of what we do. You, you know what I mean? All I have in this world is my balls and my word. I'll break them for no one. When he's being interrogated at the beginning, you know, like, it's just like brilliantly done, isn't it? I mean, you, you, there's, there's just the, the best actors I, I feel are, is when it's the same person, but you don't actually like link the two. I mean, 
Al Pacino in Scarface compared to Godfather 2. You know, like, you, you, it's almost like completely different actors, isn't it? You know, like, the best actors, there's just something about their their face and the way they carry themselves when they're performing that differentiates. I mean, I um, diverting slightly, but Tony Soprano, a James Gandolfini, when I see a picture of him, when he's just James Gandolfini, even if it's from a, a photo from on set, you... You know it's you know he's James in that photo. You know he's not Tony, and I just think to myself, there's just something he does that, and I think the very best actors are the ones that sort of do that. And Al Pacino comes in. He is not in any way Michael Corleone. He doesn't even look like Al Pacino. He just looks like a a whole new person. He is Tony Montana completely in that film. You'd say that, but that's only semi-true. So you're right. You're right. You've got an era where you've got. Scarface, you've got um, Godfather, Serpico, all these great movies. But in later in his career, he kind of became a mockery of himself. I'd say from Scent of a Woman onwards, he just becomes shouty Al Pacino. No, no, and to... it, you're right. And I think it has its genesis in this film. It's actually one of the reasons why like, I would be the dissenting voice in this uh, discussion, because I've never really been a lover of this movie. And I think the reason why is I much prefer the the Michael Corleone style of acting that, that Al Pacino does in the Godfather movies uh, that he carried through up to like The Irishman you know, in the last couple of years versus the bombastic, shouty, Big character. Yeah, trying yeah. to fill the screen, trying to you know, uh, chew the scenery, yeah. as they say. And I I believe that transition that he made into the, the shouty owl that dominated in the 90s into the 2000s, I think it begins here. And, um, yeah, because it's quite a... I was thinking about this because I knew that David was going to be talking about it. And I was thinking, you know, Al Pacino, as far as I know, is not Hispanic. So like, if they were remaking Scarface now and you know, recasting the main character as a, as a Cuban emigre as he is... Uh, in this version, it, would Al Pacino even be cast? I know he's t- too old to play it now, but it, would would they have cast? They, they would have had to have cast a Hispanic actor. And had Al Pacino done it, you know, would there be accusations of a cu- cultural appropriation? And that, for me, that sharpens my own view on how over the top he is in this movie, and it just keeps me at a distance. Now, that's not to say the film isn't wildly entertaining for its near three hours. It really is, but it it doesn't. It doesn't pull me in and sink into my bones the way that The Godfather did, the way that Heat did, and the way that you know, Dog Day Afternoon did, the way that Serpico did. Um, so I don't love this movie as much as, as David did. Yeah. I kind of agree with that. I, I, I get that. Like I, I love this film, but I love it for those lines, for those big personas and big characters, because it's entertaining. But as a film, an actual all-round package storyline acting structure i prefer carlito's way I, I, I kind of feel like it's got more to it but but it doesn't take away from the fact that i will shout pretty much every line from scarface to anyone i can anytime i can because that's that's what it does to you you just it's just extremely entertaining and, and funny and dark humored in, in 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 some in some sense Again, I think because of the distance of it, we're here and they're there, and, we, and, and the age difference of it. But if you grew up in Miami around the late 80s, it's very real as well. I mean, because it was in a bloody war zone. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it, um, going back to what Jim said, it, I do agree with you about 
it changed our you know Pacino. Uh, he, I mean, he is he is a great filmer, most poss- possibly his best film post Scarface. Um, but that but that split second where he where he he sort of becomes our you know the the um, the, the great ass you know <laughs> line. You know, that he's sort of like a little bit out of sync with him for doing, you know, for the rest of the film. But it doesn't ruin the film. I actually like sort of like that bit, and it sort of like, makes me smile. But it's just odd how that he is, you know, like a pretty serious film. But there's just like a a little weird moment where Al Pacino does becomes Al Pacino ever so slightly. Yeah, I always got the feeling that moment was improvised. Because yeah. if you look at Hank Azaria, who he's doing that to, Hank Azaria looks like he has no idea what's you know what's coming. But I think the <laughs> the because Pacino does sort of revert to shouty Al mode quite a few times in Heat, but it works because he's obviously he doesn't act opposite him in too many scenes throughout the movie. But the other half of the movie is held together by Robert De Niro, and Robert De Niro is doing a very very controlled, methodical performance, and so it allows it it creates the space for Pacino to um, you know, become a, a larger than life character, become a bit more of an exaggerated character within um, constraints. And you buy it as a cop on the edge, but everything about Scarface is so to excess that for me, his performance gets lost in, in the OTT, the OTT nature that pervades the whole film. But, but, but that was the eighties though. Was it, wasn't oh, that it the was. point? Yeah. yeah, it was. I mean, it, you it, know, it was over, there's no doubt in it. It's, it's over the top. But sorry, just before we wrap up, like, can I ask one question about your experience watching Scarface on television? Because back in, uh, what did you say, it was 99? No, I'd say it was 96. 96. So back then, I believe that network television would still have been you know, editing movies. I mean, when you first got to see Scarface on DVD, did you notice things that were in it that weren't in the TV version that you had, like, because I question, but I can't, especially that shower scene, that shower scene would definitely would have been cut. The the, the bus saw scene. Yeah. It was definitely there though. I mean, they might have, yeah, I don't. Yeah, it's there, but what they do, they edit it. So what they do, they show his face and then they show the buzz saw and then that's it. And then I think in the unedited version, you just see, you don't see anything too gory, but you see the blood trickle down his face, don't you? Yeah. Uh, but it's little things like that. Because of Watershed and stuff, you're probably right. I've watched the film so many times since that it's just impossible for me to sort of really um, remember specific bits that I was surprised about when I watched it the second time. Um, so unfortunately, I'm not going to be much up with that. So that was our three films. Thoroughly enjoyed doing that, boys. So that was The Breakfast Club, Scarface and Frailty. If you get the opportunity to watch them, I would suggest that you should. I would watch them Breakfast Club first, Frailty, and then Scarface in that order would would be my suggestion. So our next episode is based on what, lads? I believe it's going to be video shop memories. So no distinguishing films as such. We're just going to talk about our video shop experiences, yeah. which could be quite entertaining. So... Just to confirm to the listener, we have now released six episodes, so the next episode is just a click away. Our first six episodes have all been released, so you can follow through straight after this one, and we will be going bi-weekly. The show will be bi-weekly as of the 14th of May. 
Now, if you want to interact with us between now and the 14th of May or on all any of the shows that you've listened to so far, best way to do that is via social media. Uh, let us give you those social media handles. Uh, David, what's the Twitter? Yep, the Twitter handle is at blokeswatchmov1. I invite all feedback, banter, criticism of Danny Dyer, any, any, anything movie-related, anything humorous-related to movies, get in touch with us. I look forward to it. And if you want to have longer-form arguments on Facebook, you'll be able to find us at Blokes Watch Movies. And our Instagram handle is Blokes Watch Movies. That will be all images of ourselves, anything that we're going to be discussing, and David's constantly evolving top 10 movies. So thank you for taking the time for listening. We really appreciate it. Please do get in touch with any positive or negative feedback because we want to make your listening experience as pleasurable as possible. And if we don't like what we're saying, at least we can have a go back at you. Lads, it's been a pleasure as always. Love you guys to bits. Blokes Watch Movies out. Love you too, man. Best of luck, gentlemen. Blokes Watch Movies out. Take care.